Well, it does me good to see so many people here. I'm glad you were interested in our subject. Um, so let me just start by talking about what apologetics is. I remember the first time I heard that term, I thought it meant learning how to apologize, and uh, which probably isn't a bad quality for a husband to find out, you know, but uh, that's not what it means. Uh, the word apologetics comes directly from 1 Peter 3.15. And many of you know this verse. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always prepare, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now in that verse, the word answer in Greek is the word apologia, apologia, which is literally defense. So this is where we get this idea of defending our faith. But notice in this verse, when it talks about defending your faith, it doesn't refer to argument. It doesn't refer to debate. It doesn't refer to insult. It doesn't refer to armed combat. It's just, it's representing Christ well, being prepared to give an answer and keeping a clear conscience, treating people with gentleness and respect. The idea is to win people, not to defeat people. Uh, but that's where the term apologetics comes from, from that term, from that Greek word, apologia. So the reason I'm doing this, several months ago on a Sunday morning, I, I talked about apologetics. And I said, now, if anybody here would like to have some training in apologetics, if you think that we as a church should offer apologetics training, just let me know. And several people did. And so I've spent the last several months uh, in my spare time uh, <laughs> studying and trying to figure out, well, which resource am I going to use? There's a whole lot of really good books and studies on this subject. So I, I looked at several of them. I didn't look at all of them, but I looked at several of them from authors that I trusted and from uh resources that I'd been recommended by others. And in the middle of all of that, I thought, well, you know, all of these are good in their own way, but none of them are exactly what I think our church needs. A lot of apologetics resources focus on how to have a debate. You know, you're in, a, you're in an argument, a discussion with someone who thinks differently than you. How do you, how do you represent your side well? And that's fine. But what I see in our people, as, as pastor, I see more often it's not that you're getting into these long discussions with a highly educated person, although that does happen. What I see more often is you've got a family member who used to say they're a Christian, but now they say they're not. They've dropped out of church. They say they no longer believe. And how do you respond to that? What, what do you say to them when they make that announcement? Or you've got family or, or friends or coworkers who make statements, knowing you're the Christian in the office or in the neighborhood or whatever, they'll make a little statement around you just to see how you'll respond. So we want to be equipped to respond in a godly way. Uh, you overhear conversations in the office or in, uh, in the grocery store and you think, well, I should say something, but I don't know what to say. Those are the kinds of things that I think we need to be equipped in. So what I'm going to do is I tried to amalgamate as much information as I could into something that I thought would be useful to us as a church. I'm also going to be referring to a lot of different resources. So if it sounds interesting to you, you can look it up and say, yeah, I think I'll get that book. Most of these I have. So if you want to come to my office, I will let you look through it and see if you actually want to order it online or I would say go to the bookstore, but those things barely exist anymore. You know what I mean? So uh, I'll, I'll be including that, but 
for a lot of you, I imagine what we'll talk about is going to be what you need, I hope at least. So when I, when I was thinking about what it means to be a good defender of our faith, there are three things I think that are important. And one is an authentic Christian walk. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. I'm only going to do one night on this. And the reason why is because that's really the focus of everything we do in our church. At least it should be. Everything we do from the children's ministry right on up to uh, the, the choir and everything in between should be focused on equipping us to walk as authentic believers who represent the gospel well. So I don't need to spend a whole lot of time talking about it, but tonight I just want to share with you why that's so important and what it looks like. So the, the second thing we need is a wise approach. Colossians 4.15, which I have there listed in your handout. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. I love that verse because, first of all, it reminds us that everywhere we go, the people who know that we are believers are making their decision about Jesus based on what they see in us. So walk with wisdom toward outsiders means you have an audience everywhere you go. You have an audience, and your goal is not to make them like you. Your goal is to show them who Jesus is. It makes a difference. Walk with wisdom toward them. And then that second half of the statement, making the best use of the time, some translations I love the way it says, redeeming the time. You may only have a few weeks with a person. You may only have a year or two with a person before God moves them somewhere else and you no longer have contact with them. You may only have days. So make the best use of the time that you have. And we're going to talk over three weeks, the next three weeks after tonight, about what it looks like to have a wise approach to unbelievers. And it's not, I'll just tell you this, it's not going online and blasting them because they think differently than you. It's not coming up with the most clever insult to shut them down. That's not the wise approach. So the third part, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, basically after the first four weeks, we're going to spend the rest of this fall on, on into Christmas on this part, and that is have, we need confidence that the truth is on our side. Because I think most of us have experienced this. Somebody comes up and asks you a question about spiritual issues or moral issues or about the Bible or about the Christian faith, and you've never thought of that question in your life and you have no idea how to answer it. And that shakes you up. You start to think, well, maybe I mean, this person seems a lot smarter than I am. They've done a lot more thinking than I have. Maybe they're right and I'm wrong. Or, or you've got someone you know who, who expresses doubts about their faith and you start to doubt as well. You, you have no confidence in the truth of the gospel and so you are a poor witness because they've caused you to doubt instead of you helping them to doubt their doubts. If you have confidence that the truth is yours. You don't have to know all the answers. And if you don't hear anything else I say tonight, I want you to hear this. You don't have to know all the answers. In fact, probably none of us will. But what you can do is say, you know, that's a question I've never really thought of. Give me some time to, to research it and I'll get back with you. Because you have confidence that the truth is ours. You, you can walk away knowing, you know, there is an answer to that question. And I don't have it yet, but I will, I will get it to you eventually. That confidence will help you uh, witness more effectively. Uh, so what, I, what I've done is I've gone through uh, a couple of different books that, that deal with difficult questions unbelievers have for Christians about the Christian faith. 
I, I should have brought, I should have asked Sharon to make a, a schedule of the things we're going to deal with. May, maybe next week we'll have that. And uh, you can look and see the questions we're going to talk about. Um, but there'll be difficult questions that unbelievers pitch at us that just make us go, uh, I have no idea. And, and so what you'll do is you'll be able to listen to the answers to those questions. Not that you have to memorize them, but so that you know, oh, there are answers. The truth is ours. And if you want, if you find it helpful, you can even use that online and you take that video to your friend and say, here, watch this. See if that helps answer your question. But if nothing else, it gives you confidence that that, that truth is ours. Now, at the end, when, next week when, I, when we have that schedule for you, you'll see that I left a couple of, of nights unclaimed. And the reason for that is inevitably, sometime during this study, somebody's going to come up to me and say, well, I really wish you would have dealt with this. And I'll think, yeah, that's really good. I wish I'd have thought of that myself. So I'm leaving a couple of blank Wednesday nights at the end so we can deal with anything that comes up in the meantime. All right. So let's talk about that's a long enough introduction. Let's talk about why this is so important these days. Why are our tried and true methods of spreading the gospel not working like they once did. Think about it this way. I, I'm, I'm younger than some of you and older than some of you, but when I was growing up, evangelism was done this way. You learned some method for spreading the gospel, for explaining the gospel. I learned the Roman road. Some of you learned the four spiritual laws or evangelism explosion. There's, there's a hundred of them that we learned. Some presentation that you learned by memory. And then you could go to your friends at school, you could go to your neighbors, you could go knocking on doors, and many churches did this. Just cold call, knocking on doors and saying, let me tell you how to get to heaven. Or, or if you were to die tonight, and the Lord asked you, why should I let you in? What would your answer be? And we would go and, and do these presentations, and that's how we did evangelism. And then, again, in the summertime, your church would probably have a week-long revival. And what that meant was you'd bring in a, a special paid evangelist uh, and a, maybe even a special musician, and you'd have a, a week of services every night, and you'd invite your lost friends, and they'd come, and they'd hear the gospel by this guy who was, who was, special, who was a specialist at evangelism. It was probably more interesting to listen to than your regular pastor, and so you would come, and they would hear the gospel, and many of them would get saved. So why doesn't that work anymore? And, and, and by the way, in saying that, there are still churches that are making that work, and there are still Christians who are using those methods but why isn't it as widespread? Why isn't it working like it once did? So, number one, we need to know that we live in a post-Christian culture. What does that mean? Now, I don't think even when I was a kid, 45, 50 years ago, most of the people I knew were Christians, but most of them had a respect for Scripture, had a respect for the Christian faith. Just to, to put it in concrete terms, if you went to the average lost person, in this part of the world at least, and you said, let me explain to you what the Bible says about how to get to heaven. And you shared the Roman road, for instance. Most of those people at the end of that presentation, they may or may not accept Christ. But at the end of that presentation, more than likely, they'd say something like this. Well, thank you for explaining that. I've never heard it put that way. I always just thought that, that the Bible taught that only the good people go to heaven and that you follow the rules and that's how you get in. It's, it's good to know that's not the way it is. These days, that's not the response you would typically get. In fact... Most people wouldn't want to hear the presentation at all. Uh, give you another example. When you went to your lost friend 
40, 50 years ago, maybe even 30 or 20, and said, hey, we're having a series of, of revival services at our church, and I'd love for you to come. I'll take you out to eat beforehand or afterwards, and, and, and you know, we'll have a great time. They may or may not say yes, but they'd probably say something at the very least, like, yeah, I probably should go. I'll let you know. And they, they would mean it. I know, I know I should go to church. I should hear this. I should today you won't get that same response. And this is why we don't have those week-long services anymore. Churches got tired of going to all this expense and having nothing but their own members show up. So we live in a post-Christian culture. There, there is a, a lack of interest in and respect for the scriptures, for the Christian faith, and, and for the gospel. So let me talk to you about some of the different kinds of people you'll meet. Again, uh, not to say that all lost people were the same back then, but there is a new kind of lost person today. Some have been burned by the church. Now, I, I realize in saying that there are lots of people who drop out of church and are still believers in Jesus, and we'll tell you that. I've got friends who are like this, some who've been in ministry and because of experiences they've had on church staffs. They, they want nothing to do with the church anymore, but they still believe in Jesus. But lots of others grew up in church, and you know some like this. They, they were in a church that had a, a terrible split, and people were just ugly to one another, or they, uh, they experienced the pettiness of someone who was a pillar of the church, but who treated them like dirt. Or they saw hypocrisy in, in, among the leaders of the church. Or even, I hate to say it, but there are people who've experienced physical and emotional trauma in church. And these, are fo these folks are hard to reach because they've been burned by the church. And that told them that Christianity is not true. Now, some have political and or lifestyle reasons to see us as the enemy. Uh, what I mean by that is, and that's always been true, of course, but these days what's new is the sense of tribalism that we have, the sense that we all have our little tribe that we belong to. You know, I'm a, I'm a uh, Texans fan, and I vote this way, and I like barbecue, and I listen to country music, and that's my tribe. And we identify with that tribe and anybody outside that tribe we don't like. So one of the hard things for us as the church is there are, there's a whole lot of people in our community who just because of the tribe they identify with see us as the enemy. They're not even willing to hear the gospel from us because to, uh, to them, we are the enemy. And, and what we stand for is something they hate. Then there are those who think they are saved because of a religious upbringing. And I think that's a whole lot of our neighbors in this part of the world. So there's a couple of resources I'm recommending to you. One is a, is a great book I read a couple of years ago called The Unsaved Christian. How do you like that title? And that's the person, and these are very prevalent here in the South, who call themselves Christians. Maybe they grew up in church. Maybe they just had a granddaddy or a mom who was a, a, a solid churchgoer. Maybe they show up on, at Christmas and Easter. Maybe they, maybe they even attend once in a while. They, they uh, you know, copy and, and post scripture passages on Facebook and Instagram. And, and if you ask them, they'd say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But they don't have a walk with Jesus Christ. They just absolutely don't have the fruit of the Spirit upon them. There's something else I listed there. This is a free article that was written a couple weeks ago called When the South Loosens Its Bible Belt. Uh, and this is just talking about how, according to this article at least, Christians are no longer the biggest 
religious group in the South anymore. Now it's people who call themselves Christians but never go to church. And I like the way he said it. He said, they, they feel like they're still Christians and they believe everything Christians believe in except, for, except when it impacts their life. So, uh, yeah, I believe everything the Bible says except about going to church and premarital sex and smoking marijuana and getting drunk. So, yeah, I, but I'm a Christian. So, not to be judgmental, but when you meet someone like that, you have to start to say, are, are, do they, have they really met Jesus? Have they experienced being born again? We need to understand that many of our neighbors would consider themselves Christians, but are not, and they're hard to reach. How do you tell someone, you don't have this yet? And then there are those who have ridiculously false assumptions about Christianity. I don't know if you've noticed, but more and more, we're, we're having neighbors who are not from our country, and some of them come from different faith traditions. And guess what? If you grew up in a different faith traditions, you're in a different faith tradition, your faith leaders didn't necessarily tell you the 100% truth about Christianity. Why should they? And so, for instance, if you meet a Muslim and you're trying to uh, make a, a, a relationship with your Muslim friend or your neighbor and, and share the gospel with them, you might find out that they believe that as Christians, we, we believe there are three gods, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you're going to have a hard time convincing them that that's not the case. Well, don't you believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Yes. Well, then you believe in three gods. Well, no, that's not what, no, well, yes, that's, that's what you believe. So there are people who you will meet who you have to overcome these barriers of explaining to them, no, the things you think about Christians aren't actually true. And then fifth and finally, there are those who never think about God at all. This is the one that's hardest for us to get our minds around because, again, when most of us were growing up, the lost people we knew they all had some contact with church. They had grown up in church or they had a Christian relative. Uh, many of you, if you were saved as an adult, now this may not be true of 100% of you, but most of you who got saved as adults, I bet could tell me, yeah, but I had a grandmother who prayed for me or I, I had an uncle who was a pastor or I had, you know, my mom and dad tried to get me to go to church, but I wouldn't. And then I got saved. <clears throat> There are increasingly people in our society, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, that are the result of generations of people who had no contact with Christianity right here in Texas. Their parents didn't go, their grandparents didn't go, cousins, aunts and uncles, none of them went to church, none of them had any contact with the Christian faith. And so imagine all that grounding we had, most of us growing up, and, and, and when we got saved, it was just a matter of taking all that knowledge that we'd been given and, and applying it to ourselves. They don't have any of that. So if you can imagine, uh, this is the way I look at it. Remember when we were in high school or junior high and we first learned about the Greek and Roman gods and all those stories of, of Zeus and Hermes and, you know, all those stories. And, and you'd think, oh, that's kind of interesting, but I can't believe anybody ever, ever believed in that stuff. How bizarre that anybody would order their lives around these stories. That's exactly how these people look at us. Oh, you're a nice person, but golly, I can't believe you believe any of that stuff. Who lives that way? So we have to understand what we're up against as believers. We're living in a post-Christian culture, and that has to change some things about the way we approach. doesn't change the message at all. It's the same gospel as it's always been. The Word of God doesn't change, but the way we approach people often has to. There's a second factor. 
we're fighting against our own past failure, failures. And when I say our own, I mean the church, not necessarily you and me, but uh, the church itself. So let me ask you a question real quick. How many of you have ever worked in sales of any kind? Okay. Yeah, quite a few of you. Okay. How many of you, when you were working in sales, sometimes felt like people didn't like you because you were a salesperson? Right. So I have a confession to make. I hate, hate, hate shopping for cars. <laughs> hate it. I mean, if my wife says, hey, we need to go shop for a car, I'd say, can I just, can I go get dental surgery instead? <laughs> and, and it's almost entirely because I don't want to deal with the salespeople. And yet, I know many men and women who sell cars for a living, and they're all wonderful people. I love them. I, there's not a thing in the world I don't like about them. Same thing with houses. This is literally the truth. Whenever we buy a house now, and I, I say that like we do it every two weeks, but you know what I mean. Carrie always just says, you just stay home. I'll go look at all the houses. When I see one I think we might like, I'll, that's when I'll bring in. Because she knows I cannot handle realtors. And yet... Every realtor I know personally is a wonderful person. I love them. They're great people. So what's, what's the problem? The problem is somewhere along the lines, I've met a, a, a manip manipulative car salesman or a car salesman who just drove me nuts because he wouldn't shut up. And it's poisoned me against the whole industry. I've met a realtor who didn't really care what we wanted, was just trying to get us to buy a house so she could get our commission. And it's poisoned me against the whole bunch. And that's what we're facing as believers in Jesus. It's hard to convince somebody who's had a really bad experience with a devout Christian that we're not all that way, secretly. It's hard when the Christian they know best was their boss and he was a total jerk who worked us like dogs and, and was never fair to us and never said thank you and, and just made me hate work every day. But, oh boy, he was a deacon at the church. Or, or that, that boyfriend, that boyfriend that she dated that time and he was possessive and he was jealous and then I tried to break up with him and he wouldn't let me and, oh, he was evil. But he, boy, he was a leader in his youth group or, or that judgmental neighbor or that gossipy coworker. And, and it only takes one to poison them against the whole bunch of us. And we need to understand that's going on. And it's only compounded by the fact that every week they turn on their internet and they see that another famous preacher has done something terrible or said something stupid. We're fighting against our past failures, and that's hard. And then number three, people aren't convinced by arguments. Now let me explain what I mean by this. So I read a book a couple of years ago uh, I'm not listing it for you. It's not a Christian book, although if you want to know more, I'll let you know. But it's, it, it was by a, a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. And he, he, I'm, the reason I'm telling you this was this one illustration he gave that I think is really, really powerful. He called it the elephant and the rider. He said, this explains why it's so hard to convince people to change their mind, even when you know they're wrong. Even when you've got the perfect argument, they still won't change their mind. So here's what he says. So picture a guy riding an elephant. So, you know, saddle, reins, the whole thing. The guy on top of the elephant looks like he's in charge because he's got the reins in his hand. But what if 
the man wants to go left and the elephant wants to go right. Who's going to win? The elephant, every single time. Every single time. In the illustration, the rider represents our rational mind. The way we decide truth and fiction, the, the way we think through issues, that's the rider. The elephant is our emotions. Now, that's true of you and me. That's true of all of us. Our emotions override our reasoning 99% of the time. When they disagree, if you give a rational argument to somebody, a perfect argument, your argument blows their justifications out of the water. But if it causes them emotional pain to think about changing their mind, they're not going to change their mind. In fact, they're going to think of a thousand different reasons why you're wrong and they're right. They're going to believe all the evidence that's not true over the things that are true. So let me just give you kind of a harmless illustration without getting into anything controversial yet. But let's say that you could go back in time and meet one of your ancestors. Your great-great-great-great-great-grandmother was a slave owner, and you decide, I'm going to go back in time, and I'm going to tell her, you know, Granny, you need to stop owning slaves. That's wrong. That's wrong. I hear, you know, the, the Scriptures tell us that every human being is made in the image of God, and, and in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, so in Jesus we're all one, and, and it's wrong from a Christian standpoint. And let me tell you something, I'm from the future, and, and if we don't stop this, there's going to be a terrible war, all because of this. So yeah, slavery is wrong. She's not going to change her mind. You know why? Because in order to change her mind, that means that her husband and her father and her grandfather were involved in something evil. And she thinks, but they're good people. I mean, they're, they're the best people I know. They love me. They've done everything in the world for me. I've seen them take the shirt off their back for others. They couldn't be wrong about something like this. And by the way, if I change my mind about this, they're all going to look at me like I'm a traitor. I'm going to lose everything. I'm not going to have any friends uh, because everybody thinks that this is okay. And, and, and so in her mind, she's going to say, you know, He's wrong. I mean, after all, slavery is in the Bible. It's in the Bible all the time. And, and I know how we treat our slaves here. They're, they're better off with us than they would be free. She'll, she'll think of things that are ridiculous, things that don't even make sense, but it'll comfort her because then she doesn't have to deal with the emotional pain of admitting that she's wrong. And this is what happens when we argue with someone about their beliefs, about their lifestyle, uh, Specifically, particularly on political, moral, or spiritual issues. So, what does that mean for us? What can we do? Well, 1 Peter 3.15, where we started. We all focus on that part that says, always be ready to give an answer. Because that's where we get the word apologetics from. But we don't pay attention to that next part. To everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. <coughs> Peter didn't say, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who offends you. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who says something you disagree with. He doesn't say those things. He says, be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Peter's implication is that you and I are going to be living lives that are so distinct, so different from the world in a compelling way that people are going to eventually come up to us and say, what is with you? 
Why are you this way? Why do you have this much hope? Why do you act this way? What do you have that I don't have? And you probably know this, but I need to say it anyway. I'm not simply talking about the fact that you believe doctrinally the things that are in the scriptures, as important as that is. It doesn't mean that you're good at following the rules of Scripture, that you're better at avoiding sin than they are, even though that's what we're called to do as Christians. And it doesn't mean that you are simply very devout in your faith, that you go to church every time the doors are open, that you pray, that you read the Scriptures, even though those are all things that we should do. Guess who else was really good at believing all the right things, performing all the right rituals, and following the rules? The scribes and Pharisees the very people who opposed Jesus the most and did their best to, to stop him from accomplishing his purposes. So you can't, it's more than just those things, as important as those all are. It's more than that. And it's more than being offended at their lack of knowledge. It's more than, and, and it's certainly not, okay, I, I need to say this a different way. Unfortunately, a lot of us have gotten to the point where we're so angry and disgusted at the state of our world and at the things we hear in the media, and the things we see people say uh, in public or on Facebook, uh, that we've come, come to the point where we feel like we're defending the faith if we get on social media and blast somebody who said something we don't agree with. Or uh, that we stand up in the office and we tell someone how wrong they are based on what they just said. I don't know that that's really defending the faith as much as it is making us feel good about putting somebody in their place. How many of those people turn around and become believers? That's the question we need to ask. When I'm talking about a, on an authentic Christian walk, the scriptures tell us what that looks like. It's in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things, there is no law. Now, we just did a study on Galatians a couple of months ago, so I'm not going to spend a long time on this. But I do, I do want to point out, what is love? Love is not a feeling. It's not an emotion, a sentiment. It's a decision to sacrifice. You really love your spouse when it's hard, not when it's easy. The, the height of your love is not on your wedding day when he or she looks their very, very best. The height, of your, the height of your love is when it would be easier to do the selfish thing and you choose to put them first. You know, I tell people on their wedding day all the time, you'll know it's love when he loses his job and you still believe in him. You'll know it's love when, when it would be easier to get mad and yell and bite her head off, but you choose to treat her with gentleness. That's when it's love. It's sacrifice. It's selflessness. Joy. What is joy? Joy is not simply happiness. Anybody can be happy, but joy is the opposite of self-pity. What is self-pity? Self-pity is when all you can think about is how bad things are. Oh, woe is me. Man, you get mad when somebody says, man, you ain't got it so bad. Look at you. You're, you're walking on two legs and you've got enough food in the refrigerator. Shut up. Get away from me. I, I want to sit and think about how much, how, how much stuff I don't have that I deserve. Joy is the opposite of that. Joy is no matter your circumstances, you've always got a reason to rejoice. 
then there's peace. Peace doesn't mean that everything goes your way, or there's never conflict, or there's never anything that, that uh, goes against you. Peace just means that you are the same person even when things go south. Even when you're attacked, you're at peace. Even when everything's taken away or threatened, you're at peace. Even in moments of terror, it doesn't mean you don't feel fear, but you remain the same. You have that peace in your heart. You treat people the same way. And then there's patience. And patience is simply putting up with difficult people. Isn't that fun? Don't you love that? Don't you love practicing patience? Isn't that your favorite fruit of the Spirit? And yet, that's what we're called to do. That's what an authentic Christian walk looks like. It's, it, you know an authentic Christian because people say, I don't know how he gets along with that guy. He's the only person I know that can stand him. But he does. And then there's kindness. And kindness is simply treating people the way you would want to be treated. It's, it's the golden rule come to life. Kindness is not always giving them what they want, but it's always giving them what they need, even when that's hard. Now, again, I could go on. All of these are challenging, but think about how attractive all those qualities are. I bet as I was listing those, you thought of some people who embodied certain ones of those. You probably know a person who's way more patient than you are, somebody who's who's particularly kind, or someone who is really good at expressing joy, even when life goes south. And you're probably thinking to yourself, man, I wish I was more like that person. Those are the lives we're talking about. See, what I'm not talking about, and I, I say this often, is the highly devout, highly religious person who you have a lot of respect for, but you don't ever want to be around. Because they just suck the joy out of the room. I'm talking about the person who you're so glad God brought them into your life because they have qualities that, that bless you, that challenge you and encourage you and, and strengthen you, but at the same time, that, that just bless you and make your life better. So let me say three things about the fruit of the Spirit and then we'll be done. Number one, what is fruit? Fruit is how you know what kind of tree a tree is. That wasn't the best way to say that, but if you walk up to a tree with peaches hanging off of it, you don't need a, a license in botany to know that it's a peach tree. Lemon tree, apple tree, whatever kind of tree, you can tell it by its fruit. We know this, right? In fact, that's, there, there's no such thing as a peach tree that doesn't bear peaches. There's no such thing as a pecan tree that doesn't bear pecans. So if you are a believer in Jesus, you will evidence these things. This is not, this is not a list of, oh, these are the outstanding Christians. These are the varsity Christians. I'm just a JV Christian. I, I, I don't have this stuff. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a genuine believer in Jesus who doesn't have these things in their lives. This is the fruit of the Spirit the Spirit of God. If you are a believer in Jesus, the Spirit of God has taken up residence in your life. If the Spirit of God has taken up residence in your life, the evidence is these nine things. Period. It's not a fluttery feeling when they play the song you love the most. It's not even speaking in tongues in, in contrast to what our Pentecostal brothers tell us. No, the fruit of the Spirit are these nine things. 
Second thing, notice the word fruit is singular. It's not fruits. Let me tell you why that's important. If it was the fruits of the Spirit, then you and I can look and say, well, I've got four out of nine. That's not bad. I'm no good at love. But I'm pretty good at joy. No, you've got to have them all. These are the fruit of the Spirit. You must have them all. Now, is it possible to, to be sitting here this, morning, or this evening and saying, you know, I'm really not a very patient person. Does that mean I'm lost as a goose? I'm not here to tell you whether you're saved or lost. I am here to tell you there are, there, I believe there are Christians who have these qualities but have never worked out the salvation of God into their lives. And so they're just not living this stuff. It's there. They're just not living it because they didn't know that's what it meant to be an authentic Christian. They just thought, well, I've prayed the prayer. I've, I've been baptized. I know I believe. And, and I go to church. What more do I need? You need this stuff. You need to evidence this because the world is looking for this. And then number three, we can't produce fruit on our own. That's pretty obvious, right? I can't hold out my arms and say, grow watermelons. It doesn't work. Watermelons don't grow that way anyway, right? They're on the ground. We can't produce fruit on our own. Something supernatural has to happen. And that supernatural something is the Holy Spirit of God. So just a, a couple of verses after this, verse 25, he says, if you keep in step with the Spirit, then you'll see this happen. Keep in step with the Spirit. I love that because it's, it's the idea of, of someone running that's a really strong runner. If you can just keep up with that one, if you can just stay with them, you'll be okay. And He gives you the power. He gives you the strength. You show up when He shows up and you're going to be all right. What do we do? How do we keep in step with the Spirit? We wake up in the morning and we say, Lord, I can't run with you. I'm not fast enough. I'm not strong enough. So give me the strength. I want to keep in step with your Spirit. I want Him to take me everywhere I go. Don't walk out your door without praying something like that. Depend upon the Holy Spirit. I said it Sunday. It doesn't mean your quiet time has to be in the morning. Some of you are night people. I get that. But don't start your day without at least saying that prayer. Lord, I need your spirit to guide me. So let me just say this and I'm done. I know I said that a minute ago, but I really am. I know this is probably not what you thought this was going to be. We're going to get into the dealing with specific issues as we go along. But we needed to start here with an authentic Christian walk. Why? Because if we get this part wrong, none of the rest matters. You can know all the answers. You can, you can have a mind like a steel trap that, that has all these arguments and, and all these facts. You can even have a, a crafty approach. But if your life doesn't bear fruit, nobody's going to want to hear what you say. Nobody's going to want to know what you know until they see something different in you. Now, I'm going to lead us in prayer, but first, let me just tell you, uh, on your way out, uh, what's that in your right hand, Sharon? Oh, wow. Sharon's good. That's, that's our schedule. She's got our schedule in, in her right hand. In her left hand, she's got um, some brochures for our Israel trip. If, if you're still interested, there are a couple more spots, so grab one. We've, we've re redone the itinerary, uh, so yeah, grab one of those if you want. But grab a schedule and you can see what we'll be talking about in the weeks to come. And I hope you'll be able to be here. Remember those, if you can't be here on a particular night, 
James will post it online a day or two after. So let me close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that so many people want to know how to defend their faith, how to represent you well. And I pray, Lord, that uh, this course would help us, would equip us, show us the way. Make us a church, Lord, that produces people who represent you well. Lord, we lift up the people in our lives who are not believers. Help us to see them through your eyes, not as enemies, but as people who you died for, Lord Jesus, and people you love. Help us to love them the way you do. And Lord, help us to walk authentically in a way that is compelling and clear and that, that makes people want what we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.